morning, everyone. My name is Simeon Zal around here. I'm known as the little brother in the Zal clan. Um, elsewhere where I live in England, I'm known as a professor of theology at uh, Cambridge University. Um, <laughs> but that's uh, not as important. This morning I want to talk to you. My talk this morning is called The Cure of Souls, Theory of Change in Christian Ministry. So 18 years ago this month, I stood at what turned out to be a major crossroads in my life. I was finishing up my senior year in college, and I just spent the last two years being heavily involved in campus ministry. And I found myself, and I really found that ministry deeply fulfilling, and I found myself faced with a choice to go to seminary sort of try to go into sort of full-time ministry, as so many of you here uh, are engaged in, um, or to go study theology in a sort of purely academic way in Cambridge, uh, England. Uh, little did I know that this was going to be one of the great momentous decisions of my life. I thought I was just deciding about one or two years of grad school. But in fact, this decision that I made as a 21-year-old has ended up determining much of the shape of my life. I decided to go do the academic thing. Uh, I've had a life lived abroad for almost 18 years, and a life where my primary energies have gone into the life of the academy, the life of the university teaching and research, rather than the day-to-day -day work of the church that is also close to my heart. Ever since then, and perhaps out of awareness of a road not taken, I've been kind of haunted and fascinated by the question of the relationship between the kind of work that we do in the academy with my grad students and all that stuff and the kind of work that goes on in the church. In university life, you may be very surprised to hear, um, the incentives tend to be away from the practical. Uh, the highest goals are to, say, publish in a prestigious journal, a journal that most people don't actually have access to because it's behind a paywall. Uh, and that if you're a really good article, maybe 20 specialists will read. Spend a year of your life for 20 people to read your article. That's what you're incentivized to do. Uh, you're also incentivized to publish books with university presses um, that people, uh, they're too expensive for people to afford, no matter how interested um, they might be in the subject. And to take an example completely out of thin air, I spent most of my 30s writing a book on the Holy Spirit for a prestigious university press uh, that's whose full retail cost is $85. It's only 50 in the, in the book room. Um, <laughs> anyway, this is not exactly a recipe for sort of wide uh, engagement with the church. And yet, I never would have done all this. I never would have gone into the academy rather than formal ministry if I didn't think that what takes place in universities can make a real difference in the life of the church. And this morning, I want to try to put my money where my mouth is. I want to talk as directly as I know how to do about how theology relates to day-to-day -day Christian ministry, the sort of academic theology that um, I do from day to day. I want to talk about what I have become convinced is the single most important way that Christian theology informs and shapes Christian ministry. Not just the sort of theology that we talk about or we like to think that we subscribe to or that should shape ministry, but the actual theology that is already at work in our ministries, even if we're not fully aware of it. 
another way of putting this is, you know, people ask you a lot of questions uh, about, you know, when you're a theologian about the Trinity or what you think of N.T. Wright or whatever. Uh, the question I wish people asked me was, how does all this theology relate to, to ministry? So I'm going to try to answer the question that no one asks me. <laughs> the basic idea in this talk is that every ministry is always making certain kinds of theological assumptions about human nature and about how God works in people's lives. In more technical theological terms, you could say that every form of ministry has an implicit theological anthropology and an implicit theology of grace. These assumptions are not always conscious or clearly articulated, and part of my goal this morning is to help us be more clear about articulating these things, more aware of them. But these assumptions have huge effects on pastoral ministry and on Christian experience. Indeed, I'm convinced that few things have a greater effect on the success or failure of a given ministry than some of these key theological assumptions. In order to explain what I mean, I'm going to borrow a term from, of all places, the world of philanthropy and development. Uh, my wife, Bonnie, works in philanthropy as a consultant, and over the past few years, she's always using this term that at first I thought was jargony and now I think is awesome. Uh, the term is theory of change. What is theory of change? Now, bear with me for a second. It's going to sound like I'm giving a business school talk, but I'm, I'm not. Basically, this term names, uh, theory of change names a strategy that an organization uses when it wants to make some change in the world through its activities. So when you ask an organization about what its theory of change is, it's a way of getting uh, this group or whatever to articulate more explicitly what outcome or effect they're trying to accomplish with their work, what strategy they're using to effect that outcome, and third, what assumptions they're making that inform why they think that strategy will work. It's basically a term that uh, emerged when some insightful people realized that we're actually really bad at this kind of thinking through. Uh, people have a way of sort of saying, um, well, we do X, we hope that Y will happen, and we just kind of, that's it. We just don't really articulate um, what's going on. Uh, and we don't really think about how X will plausibly lead to Y. So asking you about your theory of change forces you to think through the steps to realize where you're making, say, weird or implausible assumptions so that you can then make changes and render your strategy more effective for producing your outcome. Okay. That may all sound very abstract and, again, like a kind of business school thing rather than something from theology, but over the past few years, I've actually found it to be a really helpful way of trying to think about and articulate the relationship between uh, theology and uh, the life of the church. Let me give a few examples from the life of the church of what I mean by this. So one really common approach to theory of change in Christian ministry is what we might call the sacramental participation approach. A lot of Christian ministries, especially those that lean more Catholic, view the sacraments, and especially the Eucharist, as in many ways the heart of their ministry. The main outcome or goal of such ministry, broadly speaking, in the sacramental participation model, is to create sanctified human beings. Growing in sanctification will allow human beings to love God and serve the world and ultimately fit their souls for their true purpose of dwelling with God in eternity. That's the outcome. The strategy used to achieve the goal is focused on the sacraments. By being baptized and by receiving the Eucharist on a regular basis, 
the Christian in various ways that are technically described in Thomist theology. Basically, the Christian is given new moral powers of a certain kind to engage in sanctified behavior and to develop more righteous habits and ways of being in the world over the course of their lives. Through the sacraments, God's grace is infused in the heart of Christians such that they have new effective capabilities of working out their salvation. Now behind this sacramental theory of change lie two fundamental theological assumptions. This is what I'm interested in is showing how the, the assumptions that lie behind approaches to ministry. So the first assumption behind this approach is that human beings are sinners who on their own terms, their own powers, without God's grace, are entirely incapable of the sort of sanctification required of them. People need grace. The second assumption, that's an assumption about human nature, right? The second assumption is that the sacraments really do change us, kind of in our souls, granting these new moral powers in some sense to enable a life of love and service. So that's a, an assumption about the nature of grace, that it works through sacraments in a particular kind of way. Now, maybe it's just because I'm sort of a theology nerd, but I find this kind of analysis just helpful and interesting. Analyzing the implied theory of change in sacrament-focused ministries allows us to see how this kind of approach is grounded in a coherent vision of Christian life, even if you don't agree with all the assumptions, a coherent vision of how God works to transform people. And it also helps us just to see how important certain specifically theological assumptions are here, assumptions about human nature, and about how divine grace works. Of course, other approaches to ministry use different theories of change. Another popular Christian theory of change, one that is common especially in Protestant circles, is what I think of broadly as the Christian information approach. I realize that sort of sounds more pejorative than I intended to, but anyway. Um, the working idea, so far as I can tell, is that the most important thing in determining whether Christians thrive and flourish comes down to how much contact they get with uh, the vision of life contained in the Bible. As God's revelation, the Bible contains a great deal of information about what God is like, about what Christians' uh, life should be like, how Christians should live, and about the good news of salvation. In this approach, the idea seems basically to be that the purpose of, of a sermon, for example, is to kind of exposit a scriptural text in such a way that principles for Christian living are extracted from it, that are latent in the text, and then are, are made explicit and sort of handed to the congregation. So years ago, my wife and I attended a church like this. I mean, a lot of churches in England, sort of this is kind of the, I don't know where, where it's learned, but this is the sort of the operative approach to, to sermons uh, a lot, especially in kind of evangelical Church of England world that I spend a lot of time in. I remember years ago, we were at a church where every single Sunday, so the passage would be about, say, Jesus withdraws to go pray. And so the sermon becomes, here are four principles about how to pray, uh, you know, why we need to withdraw, why prayer is important, and so on. So that's, the text is really about teaching, giving us sort of tips on how to pray. Again, I, I don't mean that as pejoratively as it keeps coming out. Um, uh, or, you know, you, you extract tips on, tips on evangelism from, from some event um, in the Gospels or something like that. Um, now, let's analyze this in terms of theory of change. As in the case of the sacramental participation approach, the Christian information theory of ministry is built on several theological assumptions that are not always explicitly articulated, but I think are, are operative. First, it assumes, and here very reasonably, I'm, I'm, I'm all in favor of this, that the Bible, as God's inspired word, is in many senses the primary instrument through which God works in Christian lives. I'm on board. 
Second, and more controversially, the approach kind of subtly assumes that human beings are shaped above all by contact with Christian knowledge or information. Although we know sort of in secular life that giving advice never works, we sort of think that because it's Christian advice, it's Bible advice, <laughs> now it's going to work. Uh, so the normal rules don't apply. You can put this in more uh, technical theological jargon to say that this, is, this approach assumes a, um, a view of regenerate reason or sanctified reason in the Christian, that we can kind of interact differently with this kind of knowledge uh, that's inspired. Um, and so it's a theory of human nature, at least how Christians work, that is, that is in, uh, implied. It's, it's one that I don't agree with, but um, there it is. Now, there are a bunch of other popular, important theories of change in Christian ministry that we could talk about. Theories based around Christian practices, a lot of, especially in academic theology, that's where everyone kind of goes. It's, it's all about contemplative prayer uh, as sort of transforming your soul over time, um, which is a lovely vision in many, in many ways. Um, or sort of getting people plugged into Christian communities. Some Christian ministries, it's just all about getting people engaged in the community and somehow then it'll just, I think, you know, there's a lot to that, but um, uh, I'm particularly interested in Pentecostal and charismatic approaches where everything in, in, a, in a service is ultimately oriented towards stirring you to come forward for prayer ministry at the end and have a kind of emotional traffic with God um, through an altar call, that kind of thing. That's, there's a theory of change implied there uh, as well. But um, the point for now is just to sort of illustrate how, how this sort of way of thinking uh, works. And this leads me, I have two questions I want to ask you in this first part of the talk. First, is what is your theory of change in Christian ministry? I know a lot of us here are highly involved in Christian ministry, formally, either as clergy or as lay people. You're the kind of person who comes to this conference after all. So I ask you, what specifically is it that you think you're doing on Sunday? What are you trying to accomplish? What is your goal and what are the main strategies you think are most important uh, to deploy for achieving that goal? Are you fundamentally trying to teach people about God's vision for human life? Are you fundamentally, ultimately trying to help foster a certain kind of religious experience? Is your main goal discipleship of people who are already Christians, or is it evangelism? These are all different kinds of goals that have different kinds of strategies and theories of change that, that, that are implied. Or if you're someone more on the kind of receiving end of ministry than the one doing the ministering, and of course we're all on the receiving end of ministry as well, it's still an interesting question. What do you see as the most important part of your Christian life from week to week? What do you look for on Sunday? What sort of ministry context do you find yourself most consistently ministered to in? I have a dear friend who's always sort of trying to find the right church, and he's saying, I don't want a church where I can really be fed. And whatever exactly he means by that, I think he means has to do with Christian information, to be honest, but um, he has a theory of change he's working with. He thinks a certain kind of ministry is what he's after, uh, and that has to do with a certain kind of sermon and so on. So what I find helpful about these kinds of questions is that they have a way of surfacing what our operative theology is. And make no mistake, we all have an operative theology. I'm not just saying that because uh, it makes my job seem more important. <laughs> it's not necessarily, by the way, the theology that you think you subscribe to. It's the theology you are actually deploying or responding to in practice. 
if you're doing ministry, then you have an operative theological anthropology, an operative account, a sense of, of what human nature is like, and an operative theology of grace. So for example, if you think the sacraments, and especially the Eucharist, uh, is really central in ministry, as many people do, then that means that whether you are conscious of it or not, you are committed to certain theological assumptions about how the Eucharist mediates divine grace to the human will. If you're a pastor who spends upwards of 20 hours a week preparing an exegetical sermon that's 45 minutes long, then chances are your ministry is assuming certain things about how people are transformed through engage engagement with the Bible. Before moving on, one last point uh, just to make. I, you may be thinking, well, there's more than one theory of change. You know, um, many, they're, they're, uh, I've kind of been making these simple or blunt to sort of draw out the point. And I do think that in practice, most ministries are deploying several at once. They're not necessarily competitive. At the same time, I do think if you're sort of forced at gunpoint, you know, what's the one thing you think is most needed? You, there will be something you think is more important uh, than the others, whether it's the sermon or the Eucharist or the prayer time or whatever it is. Okay, so my second million dollar question. The first one, what is your theory of change? The second one, is your theory of change working? Uh, a few years ago, I got this job, which I'm very excited about in Cambridge, and um, so we finally bought a house for the first time uh, in my life. And um, so I had to learn all sorts of wonderful sort of home skills that my wonderful father, Paul Zoll, um, he taught me many skills that I use on a daily basis, um, but handiwork around the house was not necessarily one of them. Um, and so uh, I learned from my mom about gardening, and we wanted to put jasmine up the brick along our sort of ugly um, garage. And to do that, I had to put up these cables that were maybe 12 feet long. And to put up cables, you need to drill a hole in brick uh, and put like a little eyelet thing that the cable can attach to. And um, I had a drill from Makita, you know, good company. I had this sort of hand drill. And um, I said, oh, great, I'll go make holes in the, in the brick so that I can put up the, you know, the cable. And um, so I, I, it's all fully charged. I get there, start pushing the brick against the wall, the little place that I've marked very carefully. Nothing's happening. I go maybe 10 minutes, half a battery charge. I've made a quarter of an inch. Uh, of progress into this, um, this brick. So suddenly it occurs to me, maybe I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> maybe there's another way. So, uh, so, so I Google it. And guess what? This is news. Uh, there are such things, there's something called a mortar drill bit. It's like a kind of drill bit that goes into brick. Um, and there's something called a hammer drill that uses impact. It's like a, one of those things they use on like roads, you know. Um, this is all news to me, so I'm very excited about it. It looked like a super soaker, and I felt very cool holding it. So I got the right tools. I got the mortar bit, and I got this hammer drill that was much more powerful, and it was plugged into the wall and stuff. And I go back to the, to the wall, to the brick. It's like butter. No problem at all. What's my point? Having a good theory of change, an accurate theory of change, makes is the difference between forms of ministry where you put huge amounts of energy into it and nothing happens, and ministries that work. I'm now going to do a very daring thing for a theologian, for an academic theologian. 
rather than just kind of describing stuff and giving you a typology, which I've done, don't worry, um, I'm now gonna take a great risk. I'm gonna tell you what I actually think. Because <laughs> I do think there's a theory of change that is better than others. I wanna tell you what it is and what it, I think it means for ministry. I think it's actually the theory of change that lies behind the ministerial vision of Mockingbird, at least as I see it, and maybe one of my callings in life is to be a little bit kind of the theorist behind what's going on here, to try to put it in slightly more abstract terms, but so that we can understand some things that are going on that we may not have articulated previously. So, what is the ministry equivalent of a hammer drill with a mortal mortar drill bit? Let's call it the Augustinian approach. This approach was first developed in the early 5th century by the greatest of all theologians in the Latin West, Augustine of Hippo, someone who I've spent years and years studying and I just get more excited every time I read him. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. He developed this approach, broadly speaking, through a combination of reflecting on his own experience of conversion, famously in the Confessions, go read it, uh, and also arguing with a new theology that had emerged in the fourth century that many of you will be aware of, called Pelagianism. The Pelagians, at least as Augustine saw them, had a bad theory of change and they had a deficient view of divine grace. They thought that God worked in Christians through two means. First, he created them with a powerful capacity for moral willing, such that to be a good person, the main thing you had to do was to deploy this capacity uh, for willing in the right direction. Second, they held that God had given Christians a blueprint for his vision of human life through the Bible, through his laws, so they would know what it is he wants them to do and what he wants them to use their will for. Their theory of change then was to read the Bible and then try very hard to do what it says. Augustine found this view to be naive and at odds with what scripture actually seemed to be saying about human nature. Drawing especially on Paul's statements about the inability of divine law to produce the righteousness it calls for, as well as all sorts of passages like the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus says about what defiles a person and how Galatians describes Christian life in terms of the competition of desires and so on. There's a, there's a good bit of support here. But so Augustine then argued that the core engine of human nature is not our will, but our heart and its desires. He pointed out that it's really, really hard, however, unfortunately, to change hearts. So hard, in fact, that only God can do it through the Holy Spirit. So here's his classic description. Uh, he says this, in contrast to the Pelagians, we, the Augustinian Christians, on the other hand, say that the human will is helped to achieve righteousness in this way, sanctification and so on. Human beings receive the Holy Spirit so that there arises in their minds a delight in and a love for that highest and immutable good that is God, even now while they walk by faith and not yet by sight. By this love given to them, like the pledge of a gratuitous gift, they are set afire with the desire to cling to the creator. The core verse behind this, the most important verse in the history of pneumatology is Romans 5, 5, about the love of God being poured into the heart by the spirit for what that's worth. Um, he quotes it all the time, but the key word in this passage is actually delight, delectatio in Latin. The way you change a person is by getting through not to their head, or to their will, but to their heart. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit, to fill us with new desires for the things of God and to make us hate and flee from 
bad and self-destructive desires. Now, I'd love to argue for why I think Augustine's right. Um, I did that in a very expensive academic book uh, that you can buy, and um, so I'm just going to leave it there. Just trust me. But um, I'm happy to, to talk about the details. Uh, but I think he's right. I think, it's a, I think it's a very good account of human nature uh, in biblical and theological terms. Anyway, let me try to distill his theory of human nature, his theological assumptions, uh, into three points. First, as we've sort of already said, Human beings are driven not by knowledge or will, but by desire. There's a role for knowledge and will of different kinds, but the, the ship is, is fundamentally driven by desire. We are creatures of the heart. We are creatures of love. Actually, there's another really good Florence and the Machine single called My Love, and she keeps saying in the chorus, where do I put my love? So where do I put my love? She's, again, it's a very Augustinian uh, account of human nature, um, that we are, we are creatures of love. The second Augustinian theological assumption is that the human heart is very hard to change. It strongly resists direct efforts to change it. The truth of this point is not hard to demonstrate. Have you ever tried to change someone's mind about a political issue through rational argument? Have you ever tried to talk someone out of loving someone they've fallen in love with? QED. The human heart is hard to change. Third, after the fall, the fall of human nature, human beings are wired in such a way that judgment kills love. When we feel judged, we hide our love away, Beatles would say. We put up walls, we resist. If your theory of change depends in any way on the idea that telling someone what is wrong with them will lead them straightforwardly to changing what is wrong with them, then you are sorely mistaken according to the Augustinian vision. Augustine says it beautifully in his treatise on the spirit and the letter, the greatest of all works of, of Christian theology. Quote, the law commands after all rather than helps. It teaches us that there is a disease without healing it. In fact, it increases what it does not heal so that we seek the medicine of grace with greater attention and care. So I happen to think, as I've said, that Augustine was correct that these theological assumptions are actually true. And I've spent a lot of time arguing this uh, in my kind of professional career. But what I want to do now is just jump right over those arguments, as I've said, and talk about the implications of this Augustinian theory of change for Christian ministry. I want to be super practical. I think there's a kind of map, a set of coordinates that are useful to bear in mind if you, if you take this theory of change seriously, this view of human nature seriously, this Augustinian approach. And if you want to do ministry with a hammer drill instead of with the other kind, not wear out your battery with an ineffective instrument, uh, I think your ministry will need to have a certain shape and certain contours. First, and I say this without reservation, this approach to Christian ministry means that the heart of Christian ministry is the facilitation of an emotional encounter with the God revealed in Jesus. You need... If you are not successfully engaging with people's feelings and desires, with their anxieties, their loves, their suffering, their hopelessness, their pain, then you are just playing a game with Christian words. You are not doing ministry. The intransigence of the human heart is the fundamental problem of Christian ministry, and the Spirit of God traffics in emotion and desire. 
as a kind of aside, it's no accident that the most effective forms of Christian ministry, just sort of sociologically even, in the world today are charismatic and Pentecostal ministries. They are, they are enormously compelling to people uh, all across the world in all different cultural contexts. Whatever problems these approaches may have in other domains, they understand that the experience of being helped by God in your place of felt need is at the heart of Christianity. It's a soteriological religion. Pentecostal ministries know how to use a hammer drill. Second, second, second point on the map. The Augustinian approach assumes that effective ministry always has to deal or negotiate with the fact of human resistance to judgment and law. It means that you won't end a sermon or a church service with an exhortation. And it means that you are likely to deploy the great preaching paradigm that we do talk a lot about here, I also talk about in my book, um, the distinction between the law and the gospel. Whatever else we want to say about that approach to, to preaching, it's, a, it's one of the most powerful technologies of the heart that we have available to us as Christians. It's a, it's a powerful sort of technology of ministry for changing intransigent hearts in a way that takes God's righteousness and goodness seriously as well as the intransigence of the heart seriously in order to mediate um, consoling grace to us. So there, it's, there's, there's, a, there's a reason why that is often at the heart of an Augustinian approach to ministry. And it's right there in Augustine. It's not just Luther. Uh, who talked about this. Third, if the Augustinian approach is true, it does mean that certain other approaches are not going to work very well. If you think you can change people by preaching sermons whose purpose is just to extract practical advice for Christian living from Scripture, and people don't think that's what they're doing, but I think it is what they're actually doing. Um, you know, I, uh, anyway, um, you're not going to make much of a dent in the brick wall if that's your main approach, unfortunately. This perspective is also important for thinking about spiritual practices, recognizing the centrality of desire in Christian life and the heart and the work of the Holy Spirit. It just puts an asterisk against all ideas that people change through engaging in better spiritual practices over time. Now, I'm not all negative here. I think habitual prayer, service, contemplation, Bible reading, community involvement, you name it. I mean, a lot of this stuff can have powerful shaping effects on people, including on their emotional experience. But, and this is a really important but, the Augustinian perspective tells us that they can do this only once, we can do this only once our desires have already been changed enough that we want to engage in the practice. No one will develop a transformative and durable new practice of prayer unless they fundamentally want to, and want to in such a way that they'll overcome the times when it's harder. To put it another way, the reason so many attempts to change ourselves and others through spiritual disciplines actually founder is because the core desire isn't yet there. As Jesus told us, you have to change the tree first, and the fruit will follow. Focus on the heart, and the practices will follow. Focus on the practices alone, and we're back to the brick wall again. Finally, an Augustinian theory of change means that technologies of the heart, it's a jargony term, but it's a good term, technologies of the heart are really important in ministry. What are technologies of the heart? I'm talking about things like novels and stories and movies and illustrations. I'm talking about basically what Aaron did last night. Why, why make all those jokes? Why, why bring in the songs and all in the clips and everything? And it's because the heart is such that you need to get at it obliquely. You need to get at it from the side. And that's what art does, um, whether it's popular or high or whatever. 
this is, um, you know, that, that Florence the Machine song last night. Why is that so compelling? Why are we all talking about it? Because the heart is a certain way that Augustine knew that it was. And that's why effective ministry will deploy, and there are different ways to do this, a thousand different ways to do this, but it will deploy these technologies of the heart. It also means, as it happens, that music is super important in ministry. Indeed, I think that a lot of ministries that basically have a bad theory of change get away with it because their music is ministering to people. (laughs) A very average worship leader can get through more easily than the most brilliantly prepared preacher if the preacher is using the Christian information approach, for example. This is because the worship leader is operating with a hammer drill, even if they're not very good at it. As I come to a close, so that's four, four, three, how many coordinates? Four, I think. The first is that the heart of Christian ministry is the facilitation of emotional encounter with the God revealed in Jesus. The second is that the Augustinian approach assumes that effective ministry always has to deal with the fact of human resistance to judgment and law. The third uh, is that um, certain approaches don't work very well, uh, that don't have the right kind of assumptions. And the fourth is that technologies of the heart, including music, but and art and so on are really important in ministry. I could also probably say something about human community. People tend not to become Christians unless they have friends who are Christians. Those, those sorts of, there's something to that. It has to do with the way in which we are embodied creatures of desire. We need people. We need love. Uh, and we're not just going to engage with Christianity in a, in a, in a vacuum. Uh, so there's something about sociality, I think, that's important too. Okay, as I come to a close, I'm, I'm conscious that I have not really practiced what I've preached this morning. Uh, I've said that change comes through the heart. <laughs> and then I've gone on to give you a bunch of concepts and categories. A lot of Christian information. Um, maybe this is part of the function, though, of the theologian. My job is to do my best to give you the tools you need in the great task of ministry, the task that we used to call, and I still like to think of as the cure of souls. In a world of weary priests and pastors and ministers and lay people, weary people burned out trying to get through the brick of human hearts with inadequate tools, I've tried to to present another way, to articulate another way, uh, and to... The cure of souls is always going to be a ministry to the stubborn and suffering human heart. And if that is what you do, I strongly believe that the Spirit of God will meet you in that and bless you. Thank you.